Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday, 12 noon, to defend and promote public education. And we've got a very interesting um, lot of uh, material for you this afternoon. Those of you who've been reading the paper or listening to the news are aware that the teachers, particularly the public school teachers of Australia, are very restive. They have had enough of being the scapegoats for the uh, mess that our politicians have made of the education systems in Australia. They have had enough, many of them in the public schools, of the way the ministers of education have walked away from the funding mess, the inequities in funding, and they have walked away to from being the ones who are held responsible. So that is what our press release 948 is about. It's uh, politicians behaving badly. Oh, the one thing Mr Morrison did make himself was a Minister for Education. Interesting, isn't it? But um, there, we also have uh, some other articles about uh, the teacher shortages and the crisis throughout Australia. But uh, we'll get on, shall we, with our press release 948. And here is Kim to read it to us. Over to you, Kim. Thank you, Jean. On August 12, 2022, an article entitled Australia's Teacher Shortage Won't Be Solved Until We Treat Teaching as a Profession, Not a Trade by Larissa Davies and Jim Waterson from the University of Melbourne appeared on The Conversation. They wrote... Friday 12 August 2022, state and federal education ministers met in Canberra to discuss the teacher shortage. A recent survey found almost 60% of teachers in New South Wales plan to quit in the next five years. Ahead of the meeting, numerous solutions have been offered by experts and advocates, including a teaching apprenticeship and fast-tracking students or mid-career professionals in other fields into the classrooms. As education academics researching the future of teacher education in Australia, we are concerned the current debate is missing the bigger picture. While well intended, the ideas on offer address the symptoms rather than the complexity of the cause. We need a coherent and comprehensive plan to address the real problem. Teaching is not being treated like a profession. Dogs contend that nobody has to date tackled the real underlying problem of why public, why public schools teachers have been treated by ministers of education throughout Australia, like tradesmen rather than professionals. Dogs suggest it is because ministerial responsibility, particularly for the education of the public education system and disadvantaged children have been turned upside down. Accountability for the more than $24.5 billion of public money more than $15.3 billion of which is spent on private schools has been pushed down the line to the principals and teachers. The gross inequities exacerbated by public funding of the private sector is sidestepped in a side swipe at teachers. Numerous state and in 2017, a federal Auditor General's report have questioned proper accountability for public money spent on the private sector. In response, Federal Coalition and Labor Ministers in particular state ministers in tandem have redefined accountability. Since the 1980s, with the neoliberal economic paradigm, Australian governments have preferred private to public and, in attempts to privatise the public system, forced administrative duties out of central bureaucracies down to the public school level. They've defined accountability as accountability of principals and teachers to provide data and, data and more data to a federal administrative body called ACARA, 
the Australian Assessment and Reporting Authority. Some of this data, especially that from the private sector regarding enrolments and direct funding is enlightening. But in self-managed public schools based on the privatised model, the burden has been placed upon public school principals to find and pay their own staff. And teachers are expected to evaluate themselves by administering NAPLAN, National Assessment Program for Literacy and Numeracy, and PISA, Program of International Student Assessment Tests. Teacher and students are reduced not to tradesmen, but to a production line of data collectors, and the data is used against them. If students' results fall behind the international comparisons, the teachers are responsible. Meanwhile, instead of well-qualified public school teachers being given the time to plan and teach in the fields of their expertise, they are overburdened with evaluation procedures. To add insult to injury, they are then abused by politicians like the previous coalition, Federal Acting Minister Roberts, at a conference of their more fortunate private school peers. Rather than accepting responsibility for unequal funding in favour of the private sector and the lack of accountability for this funding, federal ministers have blamed the crisis in education on our public school teachers. If Australian PISA results fall down the international scale, then perhaps then the wrong questions are being asked about the cause. This blame game and teacher bashing is a dangerous distraction from the real meaning of ministerial responsibility and accountability. Consider the following. In 2021 to 22, direct federal funding for government schools was 9.2 billion, while that for the private sector was 15.3 billion. This projected to rise by 2025 to 26 to 11.7 billion and 18 billion respectively. And although the major reason for a centralized administration is accountability for expenditure of public money, a series of Auditor General reports indicate that at least for the religious sector, financial accountability is lacking. But since 1964, if not earlier, the federal government has influenced education policy through specific purpose grants. These are grants to the states with conditions attached under sections 96 of the constitution. This is not assisted by what appears to be the con construction of an almost Byzantine administrative structure in Canberra. The Department of Education, Skills and Employment is answerable to Parliament through the Minister and is responsible for the administration of the Australian Education Act 2013 as amended in 2017. This includes accountability for the billions of dollars noted above provided through sections 96 specific purpose grants to schools. But there is another piece of administrative structure which underpins the willing participation of all state government participants in Australian schooling enterprises. This is the Ministerial Council for Education, Early Childhood Development and Youth Affairs. Membership of, of this group comprise state, territory, Australian government and New Zealand ministers with responsibility for the portfolios of school education, early childhood development and youth affairs with Papua New Guinea, Norfolk Island and East Timor having observer status. Although similar structures had existed at, since at least 1993, the current structures were finally established in what has been termed the Rudd-Gillard Revolution of 2009-2020. Gillard was assisted in this piece of administrative architecture by Professor Barry McGaw, formerly from the ACER and the OECD, who was appointed the first chairman of ACARA. He was a major player in getting, international, getting national curriculum reforms off the ground in the Gillard government and his work at the OECD enabled him to work with PISA data and NAPLAN testing. Terry Moran, who went from Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria to the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Canberra under the Labor government was also influential. And Peter Hill, who was the Secretary of the Victorian Education Department under Kennett, became the first Secretary of ACARA. In 1998, an ACER Conference Hill promoted charter schools. 
There are three cooperative structures dealing with data collection, curriculum and assessment under Byzantine infrastructure Macistia. These are ACARA, the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, which is a board with a chair, deputy chair and 11 other members nominated by the Australian government and all education streams, independent government and Catholic across state and territories. AITSL, the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership, which is governed by an independent board of directors appointed, appointed by the Minister for Education and Training. There are no teacher union representatives. ESA, Education Services Australia is a national not-for-profit company owned by all Australian education ministers. The company was established to support delivery in, of national priorities and initiatives regarding technology for education in the schools, training and higher education sectors. The Australian schooling systems, and most particularly the private systems, have developed an overwhelming thirst for money from cashed up. Central Treasury and in recent decades, both state and denominational systems have agreed to a range of conditions which represent direct interference with matters not traditionally within the ambit, ambit of the Commonwealth. This has occurred with the willing participation of both the state and private sectors, whereas in the 19th century, the Catholic system rejected central control of their schools through the inspectors by the state. The current situation is one of funding largesse with few quibbles. The only group which are discontented with current controls are, understandably, members of the teaching profession. They complain of being scapegoats for lack of funding and declining standards, overloaded with administrative duties, underpaid and burnt out. Experienced teachers are either striking or resigning, while to fill the gaps, governments are resorting to placing university students in classrooms. Dogs believe that Australia is returning to the pupil-teacher system of the 19th century and is in grave danger of reverting to the much discredited denominational systems of the 1830s, those who failed to learn from history. And this article has all of its sources listed in the footnotes, so please visit the dogs website to see it in its entirety. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, I hope that our listeners find our, our thoughts on the teacher crisis of interest. Um, and I, I think myself that there is something in it, that our ministers for education don't want to take responsibility. They just want to engage in teach bashing. And now they are paying, and our children, and our education systems are paying the price because why? Why would teachers who are well qualified, often better qualified than these ministers for education, why should they take this treatment? But the sad thing is, of course, why should our students, our children, be at the receiving end of all of this? But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to some more on uh, the teacher shortage. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Well, uh, we've been listening to uh, Kim telling us uh, just how the politicians have been kicking the responsibility for education down the line to our teachers and the teachers have had enough. 
And now we're going to hear Richard, who's going to read a very interesting article. The teacher surplus is hiding in plain sight. This is Chris Bonner writing in the conversation. Over to you, Bridget. Thank you, Jean. As teacher shortages hit classrooms across the country, the Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, is meeting his state and territory counterparts on Friday to address the problem. Their challenge is, to how, is how to find more than 4,000 new secondary teachers by 2025. A solution might be hiding in plain sight, as evidenced by the experience at various schools not far from where the ministers are meeting. Two disadvantaged high schools just over the border in Queanbeyan have about one teacher for every 10 students. Such a level of support is critically important in these schools, but at nearby Canberra Girls Grammar, the ratio is under 10. And there are low student-to-teacher ratios too at Canberra's Darmelin Catholic College, Radford College and Canberra Grammar. How have Australia's poorest and richest schools with their very different needs ended up being staffed at similar levels? And in any case, do the advantaged students truly benefit from such close attention? If Australia's teachers were more equitably distributed, our teacher supply problem would be significantly eased. This would be especially so in New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia. Public schools and some Catholic schools are being starved of teachers while in number terms, Wealthier independent schools have a surplus. The numbers tell the story. Independent schools in major cities had an overall student-teacher ratio of 11.72 to 1 in 2018, the last year before teacher shortages began to be noticed. In the same year, government schools had an average ratio of 14.73 to 1, although it could be as high as 16 to 1. If independent schools were staffed at the same level as government schools, they would have required about 32,000 teachers, but they employed about 40,000, 25% more than would have been needed if the same staffing standards had been applied to them as applied in public schools and, for the most part, in Catholic systems. At an average salary of about $80,000, those 8,000 additional teachers would have cost more than $500 million. In the light of overall needs, was it a good investment? Some might say it pays off in better results, but it doesn't. The evidence shows that schools with similar demographics produce similar results. Anyone who can use the, web, the My School website to see the impact of socioeconomic status of school enrollments on students' results. Comparisons of apples with apples show public schools achieve much the same results as independent schools at a lower cost and with less favorable student slash teacher ratios. Imagine what most public schools could achieve with better teacher resourcing. Others might say the funding of independent schools comes from parents. If this helps pay for more teachers in those schools, so what? But private schools also receive taxpayer funding. And the bigger question is, how much should that public money prop up a system that distributes more of a scarce resource? In this case, teachers to those who need them least. These days, we know a lot more about the levels of advantage, the needs of schools and their resources. The My School website includes a measure of the level of advantage of each school's enrollment. This index of community socio-educational advantage, or ICSEA, ranges from around 1,200 for the most advantaged schools to 600 or even less for the least advantaged. This measure, when matched against the dollars going into schools, reveals that the public funding of government and non-government schools with similar demographics is at a similar levels, especially for schools between the 950 to 1150 on the index. These schools enrol more than three quarters of all of Australian students. 
Their public funding and results might be at similar levels, but the regulations around staffing are anything but. The higher up the ICSEA scale, the greater the disparity between the private sector, both independent and Catholic, and the public sector in the number of teachers compared with students. Given that all but the higher fee schools are overwhelmingly publicly funded, governments have an obligation to better align the distribution of teachers to reflect this reality. We've long known this. Academics Lindsay Connors and Jim McMorrow told the Gonski Review a dozen years ago that government funding to private schools had increased to the point that federal and state governments fully covered the cost of the teaching workforce in 95% of all schools, the remaining 5% being high-fee private schools. In 2010, there were already clear grounds for establishing a common framework for determining schools' entitlement to teachers. In effect, allocating staff according to the nature and scale of the educational task they faced. Nothing was done, and now we live with the consequences. Almost alone, it is the government school sector that attempts to provide staffing support for the more disadvantaged schools. This has been achieved at the cost of less favourable ratios for public schools with more educationally advantaged students. In contrast, staffing at Catholic and independent schools has tended to favour their more advantaged and better resourced students. The inequitable distribution of teachers among schools is a highly significant source of the growing inequality. Over to you, Jean. Well, isn't that interesting? Uh, Chris Bonner, Bonner has knocked a, well, he said some very interesting things there. The most interesting thing is that even 10 years ago, 95% of the uh, teaching costs, the salaries of teachers in private schools was being paid for by the public purse. Uh, that's a very good reason for saying that it's time there was an equitable a distribution of teachers, I would think, between public and private. We're paying for it. We're paying for the private schools. A lot of people are saying, isn't it time that we actually use them? Uh, Nationalisation, of course, is a, a naughty word these days. Uh, you're socialists, I suppose, if you say such things. But um, if the public are paying for something, why isn't it public? Why isn't it publicly accessible? Um, but uh, this is the problem, of course, with the uh, ideology the, um, of, the, uh, of the 1980s that we're still having to live with, even though it was blown out of the water in the GFC of 2008. We don't seem to be able to learn, do we? But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to uh, read about the, uh, the private schools have got the most unbelievable, really unbelievable uh, salaries for their top staff. And Dale's going to tell us about that. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card. And once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope. And uh, we've got some two very, very interesting articles from Sydney. Uh, first of all, we're going to find out what the uh, principles of these 
really very, very wealthy schools up there in Sydney are being paid. I suspect it's much the same down here in Melbourne and elsewhere around Australia. But as well as that, uh, there is a Catholic school in Sydney that is moving into Roselle. They're moving into an old um, building that they probably own, but it's causing a lot of trouble with the labels because of the traffic hazard that it's going to um, result in. So we're going to hear about that from Jeff, but for the moment we're going to Dale, who's going to tell us about private schools are going to be forced to shed light on their salaries for their top staff by the Charities Commission because these wealthy schools, dear listeners, are charities mm. for the purpose of the Tax Act. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this is an article by Lucy Carroll from the Sydney Morning Herald uh, and it says private schools will be forced to be more transparent about the salaries of their top staff and principals, some of whom earn triple their public school counterparts with pay packets exceeding $600,000 a year. Under a shake-up to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, the ACNC, rules, all large charities, which includes most private schools, will be forced to disclose the total sum paid annually to their biggest earners. Private schools will need to report the aggregate amount paid to their most senior staff, likely to include principals, deputies, bursars and financial officers, in their 2022 annual information statements, but it will remain voluntary to disclose individual salaries. Given the scale of public funding provided to private schools, this is definitely a step in the right direction, said Paul Kitson, an education leadership leadership academic at the Australian Catholic University and a former independent school principal. Transparency and confidence in expenditure is expected of public institutions. Other government and public companies reveal chief executive salaries, so it's more than reasonable we expect more accountability from independent schools, particularly when teachers' salaries are public, as are the salaries of principals in government schools. Very interesting to be coming from a Catholic teacher. The Catholic University. Um, uh, uh, yes, it's a very interesting indeed. Well, yeah, perhaps they're trying to clean up their image a little. Uh, perhaps they're trying to say that they're public institutions, which they're not. No, they're not, because if they were, then they would be publicly accessible and they are not accessible to the public. But to continue with the article, uh, a national survey of 275 private school principals by the Association of Heads of Independent Schools Australia, or AHISA, we love our acronyms, uh, provided to the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, shows the mean base salary for private school principals jumped by more than $10,000 in the past two years, rising from $326,166 in 2020 to $337,183 in 2022. AHISA Chief Executive Beth Blackwood said there was a significant spread in the principal salaries across independent schools, from just over $100,000 through to 600,000, which takes in variables such as enrolments, 
reporting, whether schools are regional or metropolitan, and the funding they receive. New South Wales public school principals earn a maximum salary of $194,816. And the Secretary of the State Department of Education, who runs 2,200 schools, has a salary of $600,000. An ACNC spokesperson said any large charity, which includes most private schools with revenue more than $3 million, will need to disclose the aggregated total of key management personnel remuneration. Charities will be required to disclose the top remuneration and the number of staff that that applies to. It can choose voluntarily to disclose a breakdown of salaries, but it's not required, they said. Some Sydney schools, such as Kambala and Winona, have previously disclosed the compensation of directors and other key management, but the ACNC estimates that less than half of medium and large charities voluntarily provide this information in separate financial reports. And the Herald has previously reported that the King's School headmaster had an annual salary of at least $700,000. Plus all the additions, his business class uh, uh, trips to England and uh, just to see a very special Watermeet royalty and uh, his uh, special swimming pool uh, and his residence at King's School, yes. Lots of add-ons there. Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary. Head of the Association of Independent Schools of New South Wales, Dr Jeff Newcomb, said responsibilities within the independent school sector vary widely, with some principals managing businesses of up to $80 million and extensive projects and other running special assistance schools. Well, perhaps, Dr Jeff Newcomb, you should realise that your that education is not a business. They're not running businesses. This is education it's an institution for goodness sake well one wonders sometimes doesn't it especially when they're dealing with the international school situation up in up in Kilmore Mm. which is a failed business these businesses can fail and affect children absolutely and well he says that they don't want a league of table of salaries to be created I'll bet they don't in some cases salaries are artificially increased because especially if heads are required to live on site so fringe benefits tax becomes part of the package chief economist at the Australian Institute Richard Dennis said Australia is one of the most privatised school systems in the OECD and welcomed the changes given the significant taxpayer funding of private schools. We need to invest in boosting and improving the performance of Australian schools. We have taxpayer dollars flowing into schools that are spending millions on building projects, but this does nothing to boost numeracy and literacy standards, Dennis said. The majority of the highest fee-paying private school funding comes from parent fees, but the federal and state government also contribute between $3,000 to $10,000 for each student. However, taxpayer funds can only be spent on the costs of running the school rather than on capital works. Well, how do they know that? That's not policed. It's very difficult to police it. That's right. Uh, But that's what it's supposed to be. With a lot of a lot of this funding business, you know, you can write something in a 
in legislation, but whether or not it's going to be um, inspected, whether you're going to have uh, uh, compliance is a quite different matter. Yeah, and that's the problem with handing this lump of money to a nebulous organisation like the Catholic Education Board for them to then distribute as they see fit. Very problematic and it does require some more transparency at the very least. Uh, and just to finish the article in Queensland, principal salaries at eight elite private schools have previously been tabled in Parliament with annual reports showing Toowoomba Grammar Principal Peter Hauser took home an annual package of $565,000 in 2020. Half of those headmasters were on total packages of more than half a million in 2020. And there's many comments. Um, Matt says all charities should be required to disclose all expenditure. Private schools also don't charge GST as well as accept taxpayer funds. We should know where the money, where this money goes. Uh, Tuffy says the idea that private schools save the government money is a myth. And yeah, it just goes on. But uh, we've got another article uh, from Jeff, I believe. Is that right, Jean? Yes, this is a very interesting article about um, how the residents are restive up in the Sydney suburb of Roselle. It's an inner city suburb in the western Sydney suburb and um, St Aloysius College uh, wants to have all its year nine boys there and the locals are not happy. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. We've got a, an article here from the Sydney Morning Herald by Andrew Taylor on the 14th of August and it's about how the businesses that are called private schools manage to use their political power to sort of override local community issues, something that a normal business wouldn't be able to do. This one's called Private School Boys Accused of Trying to Shoehorn a Campus into the Inner West, which is of Sydney. It says, A prestigious private school in the North Shore plans to set up a campus for Year 9 boys in Sydney's Inner West amid concerns about traffic chaos during school drop-off and pick-up. St. Aloysius College has already advertised for a principal to head its Roselle campus, even though its $2 million proposal is yet to be approved. The private boys' school wants to open a campus for up to 200 Year 9 students and 15 staff at a disused Catholic girls' school on Victoria Road to provide teaching facilities while the main Kirribilli campus is redeveloped. St. Aloysius College principal Mark Tannock said the school wanted to create a new tailor-made opportunity for boys in the middle years of adolescence. We believe we can more effectively respond to the learning and formative needs of boys in a standalone campus, he said. This program will have a focus on service in the community and will deepen our commitment to educating boys in a faith that does justice. Tannock said the Roselle campus will provide classrooms and an external recreation space for 160 boys next year. We're not building any new facilities, just refitting an existing facility so that can accommodate schooling for boys. Uh, he said the works are a light touch and mostly internal. Jamie Parker, Greens member for Balmain, said the proposal to renew the vacant site was positive, but it needs to balance the suitability of the location, concerns raised by the residents and the capacity of local infrastructure. Residents are right to be concerned that an exclusive private, private school is trying to shoehorn a campus into what is already a, a very tightly packed part of our community with limited parking and narrow streets, he said. 
Parker said residents had been pounded for years by, by years of roadworks associated with West Connex, which had brought noise disruption and road closures. If it goes ahead, we could see almost 200 cars brought to bear on a quiet, narrow local road during pickup and drop-off every day, he said. A number of nearby residents objected to the school's plans, warning surrounding streets were narrow and would become gridlocked during school drop-off and pickup. Residents would be inconvenienced by traffic jams and parking congestion, which also posed a risk to school children. Inner West Council also lodged an objection to the proposed U campus because of its parking and traffic impact, but reversed its opposition after council officers met with planning bureaucrats at the school. While the issues were not satisfactorily addressed in the additional information, we are continuing to work with DPE on conditions that will minimise impacts to the community, a council spokeswoman said. Council has withdrawn the objection subject to the inclusion of the conditions. St Aloysius was overfunded by $1,652,961 in the 2021 uh, uh, year by New South, the New South Wales government, according to a report by educational economist Adam Rorris, commissioned by the New South Wales Teachers Federation, one of more than 200 private schools given extra state government money. Classified as state significant development, the school's development application is being assessed by the planning department, which has requested additional information. But St Aloysius is, always is already recruiting staff for the Roselle campus, which is owned by the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney. Term three is when schools throughout Sydney seek to recruit roles for the following year, Tanak said. To attract the best candidates possible, it's important to have our leader of this campus in place soon. School pickup and drop-offs are often a contentious issue, with residents complaining that private schools cause traffic congestion and dangerous driving by parents. The head of the Sydney Church of England Girls Grammar School, SCEGGS, Darlinghurst, last month said police would be employed to monitor parents dropping off and picking up children from the prestigious girls' school, as well as a hiring a traffic warden in response to traffic complaints from its inner-city neighbours. Tannock said the school had worked hard over recent months to respond to concerns about traffic and parking from nearby residents in the council. We want to be a good neighbour and to ensure that our impact on traffic and parking is limited, he said. We believe that our plans will ensure this. Tannock said the school is planning to integrate successfully into the local community and regenerate a facility that has been mostly vacant for a long time. We will be prior prioritising the use of public transport for our students, given their age. Uh, so that, back to you, uh, Jean. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, we've been up in Sydney with these private school uh, in the flesh pots of the private schools, haven't we? Uh, but we'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back to America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. There's kind of a lot of, a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving 
um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity you know it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many you know single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio You're still listening to the Dogs Program, and uh, thanks to Jeff, but uh, we're now going to get Jeff again to tell us what's going on in America. After all, he's our, our American expert. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. This one comes from another one from Diana Rovich's wonderful blog on public education from the United States. Uh, it's from Florida, and it's about a teacher who resigns after staff remove pictures of African-American heroes from his classroom. Uh, from the 15th of August. So uh, so Diana Ravitch goes, so now we see the consequences of DeSantis's fabricated culture war against African-American history. Too much or any attention to racism runs afoul of Florida's stop woke law. One school decided to stop woke by ordering teacher to, the teacher to remove pictures of black heroes. The teacher quit. Escamba County where this happened has a severe teacher shortage. An Escambia County public school teacher resigned this week over what he characterised as racist behaviour by the school district employee. The teacher, Michael James, emailed a letter to Governor Ron DeSantis and Escambia uh, County Superintendent Tim Smith, in which he wrote that a district employee removed pictures of historic black American heroes from his classroom walls, citing the images images as being age inappropriate. The images that were removed from the bulletin board at OJ Sems Elementary School included depictions of Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Colin Powell, and George Washington Carver, James said. District uh, uh, Escambia School District refutes the teacher's account of removal of black teachers' uh, leaders' photos. It really floored me, James told the News Journal. I've been teaching special education for 15 years, and it just really floored me when she, she did that. James chose the board's theme because the majority of the students and the residents in the neighbourhoods that surround OJ Sam's school are black and he wanted to motivate his students with inspirational leaders they could easily look up to and see themselves. James, 61, of Daphne, Alabama, who is white, sent his letter to the governor on Monday night. He officially resigned from his position as an exceptional student education leader at OJ Sam's elementary school on Tuesday morning. His resignation came in the midst of a national teacher shortage, a day before the start of the new school year, Wednesday. Superintendent Smith said teachers are permitted to decorate their classrooms with educational materials, and he was unaware of any policies that would prohibit a teacher from displaying pictures of inspirational American heroes on their walls. Smith said a full investigation of the incident, which he called an an anomaly, has been launched. Charlie Crist, who is running for the Democratic nomination for governor to challenge DeSantis in November, 
blamed the governor's culture wars for politicizing Florida's public schools. The district concluded its investigation and disputed the teacher's account. It said that two staff members, including a behavior analyst, analyst came to help Mr. James set up his classroom. They noticed that he had a pictures of black luminaries in the front of the room when he should have installed a list of state standards instead. The behavior analyst told James that the bulletin board directly behind his teaching area had to be dedicated to state required curriculum materials that he would require to teach his specific students according to the district. To be clear, due to the nature of this specific population of students, it is critical the instructional materials be within their line of sight during instruction for the purposes of student focus and retention, read this district's statement. The behavior anal analyst observed his bulletin board was awesome because of the history tied to it, but the language and reading levels on the posters were too complex for this particular group of students, the statement said. Mr. James said that the district's account was malarkey. There's a, a nice reference to Biden's malarkey. Yeah, isn't it interesting that they're installing culture police now in Florida and in other conservative-led states in the United States, and they're, they're politicising the views of history. Uh, and we've seen something of that in Australia with uh, John Howard's black armband history and Keith Winshuttle and that sort of thing. Anyway, very interesting stuff and sad to see this interference in public schools. This is another one from our wonderful Diana Ravitch's blog, and it's about the United States and the, how they see public schools are essential for democracy. It's from August 15th. Uh, and Ravitch writes, Jennifer Hall Lee is the trustee of the public schools of the Pasadena United School. Uh, school district. She explains here why public schools are the foundation stone of democracy. All of us pay taxes for public schools, even if we have no children, even if our children are no longer school age, even if our children attend private or religious schools. Supporting public schools is a civic responsibility. Paying for other people's private choices is not. In the Superintendent's Enrolment Committee for Pasadena United School District, a group of us are reading and discussing a book entitled American Public Education and the Responsibility of Its Citizens by Sarah Stitzlin. This book is compelling because it explains why public schools are indispensable to our democracy and how we, are, we the people, are part and parcel of its success. I chose the book for the Enrolment Committee because we live in a time when the importance of public schools is being lost in the trends of privatizing education. Public schools have a dynamic history that seems to be getting lost. Why public schools? So why are public schools important? Here is my answer. Every child has a seat in a public school. It sounds simple, but it is quite profound. No matter who the child is or from where they came, they belong here. Public education has its struggles in the United States to be sure. Now we fight the hyper-capitalistic phenomenon of privatization, vouchers, in order to preserve the uniquely American institution of public education. At every term, it seems there is a private company marketing to us to let us know that our child might be better off somewhere else besides a public school. We live in a time when we are seeing ourselves as consumers rather than citizens. It is hard to wrap our heads around the complexity in the world today. The political theorist Benjamin Barber in 2017 suggested that we shift our thinking about the world from seeing nations and instead see our cities where the majority of people live. 
It is in the cities, he said, where we announce ourselves as citizens and participants, as people with a right to write our own narratives. I understand his point, as we are closest to the functions of government in our local communities. We are more apt to know who our city council members are and our librarians, our school board trustees, our mayors and our county, county supervisors. I would extend Barber's idea to our public schools. Personally, I think of myself as an Altadinen resident and a member of the PUSD. For me, it's easy to support and love my local school district simply because standing in one of our schools is a humbling experience because our schools have been through so much history, segregation, integration, and then, unfortunately, resegregation and now privatisation, low birth rates and high housing costs. Throughout it all, we succeed. The PUSD is thought of as a leader throughout the state of California. Our ideas are followed by others in the state in terms of our graduate defence and our graduate profile. We have had many successes and here are just a few. We are competitive. In our community, we have the largest number of private schools per capita, yet we are competitive with private schools because of our teachers, principals, signature programs, curriculum, and our diverse student body. There are private school students who choose to come to our district. Our graduates attend Yale, Harvard, Vanderbilt, UCLA, Pasadena City College, Howard Occidental, USC, US, UC Berkeley, Tulane, UC San Diego, Brown, UC Merced, and more. We have been entrusted with back-to-back -back federal magnet grants because we have shown success. We are successfully achieving socioeconomic integration through open enrolment. When I say public school, I emphasise public. And that was an article by by Jennifer Hall-Lee called Public Schools Are Essential for Democracy in Diana Ravitch's blog. Another wonderful article uh, from Diana Ravitch's wonderful blog, Pennsylvania cyber, cyber charters are costly and academically inferior. So uh, Diana Ravitch writes, David Lapp on the 15th of August, David Lapp, Director of Policy Research for Research for Action in Philadelphia, recently wrote about the money wasted on cyber charters in Pennsylvania. Apparently, the industry has a strong hold on the Pennsylvania legislature. There is no other reason that it continues to thrive. During the worst of the pandemic, schools closed for reasons of safety and caution. Cyber charters boomed to fill the gap. But with physical schools open, the truth must be told about cyber charters. They are a poor substitute for real schools. Lapp writes, When COVID-19 pandemic forced schools into remote learning instruction, many Pennsylvania policymakers express, expressed deep concerns. Many lamented the impact on mental health when students stopped receiving in-person learning and the important social schools that develops. Many were upset by the evidence of significant learning loss that accompanied the switch to virtual instruction. The Pennsylvania General Assembly even enacted a new law allowing students to voluntarily repeat, repeat a grade to make up for lost educational opportunities. This year, policymakers should consider bringing that same energy to a similarly harmful and even more wasteful form of remote learning, one that's been growing for more than two decades and reaching a, reached a boiling point during the pandemic. I'm talking about the soaring enrolment growth and accompanying financial cost of Pennsylvania's cyber charter school expansion. There's solid research both nationally and in Pennsylvania that cyber charter schools have an overwhelmingly negative impact on student learning. The learning loss students 
experience from virtual instruction in cyber charter schools appears similar to the learning loss students experienced from virtual instruction during the pandemic. For each year a student is enrolled in cyber charter school, they're also more likely to experience chronic absenteeism and less likely to enroll in post-secondary education. There's also clear evidence that spending on cyber charter school expansion comes at the expense of students receiving in-person learning in school districts and brick and mortar charter schools where more effective instruction is provided. In fact, school district, districts which pay for cyber charter tuition from their own school budgets have indicated that charter tuition is now their top budget pressure. It's easy to understand why. Pennsylvania already had the high, highest cyber charter school enrollment in the country, and that enrollment grew by 22,618 students during the pandemic. Districts are now spending over $1 billion a year on cyber charter tuition, reflecting an increase of $335 million from before the pandemic. These surging expenses impacted the vast majority of school districts in the state. Cyber charter tuition is likely represents the most inefficient spending in Pennsylvania school finance. For one, the cyber charter system is redundant. Both before and since the pandemic, most school districts continue to offer their own virtual schools. Secondly, the tuition rates mandated under current Pennsylvania law require districts to pay cyber charters more than it actually costs to operate virtual schools. And finally, when students leave for cyber charter schools, districts must, of course, still operate their own brick and mortar schools for remaining students, only now with fewer resources. In Research for Action's recent report, the negative fiscal impact of cyber charter enrolment due to COVID-19, we estimated that the tuition increase in just one year of the pandemic from 2019-2020 to 2021 school years led to between $290 to $308 million of additional stranded costs borne by school districts. Nearly the entire amount of increases in the school district total expenditures statewide uh, were accounted for by increases in the school district tuition payments to charter schools, most of which were for cyber charters specifically. Meanwhile, this tuition spike has left cyber charters in Pennsylvania flush with surplus resources. More than half the additional funding uh, cyber charters received from districts in 2021 was not even used for student expenses. Rather, cyber charters funneled over $170 million into their general funds balances that unlike school districts have no statutory limits. That's finished the article. It's just one more case where the whole privatisation lie just allowed businesses to funnel government money just destined for public education straight into their cyber pockets. Cyber charter schools proving to be as dodgy as they sound. <laughs> they are indeed, no doubt. And uh, look, that note, back to you, Jean. Yes, well, the world for public education is not a very favourable place, but we are going to be very positive now because we always end on a positive note in the dogs program. We're going to our great state school, a lovely little bush school up in the Latrobe Valley. Every week on the dogs program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is 
Bolara Primary School up in the Gippsland region. And on their website, there's a message from the principal saying their school motto is connected to community, dedicated to learning. Their motto clearly typifies what's important to the staff and community of Bolara. The community is hardworking and strives to create an inclusive town that provides diverse opportunities for all. Our parents value education and are active in assisting the growth of their students. Every Monday, students are given reading awards as they reach milestones, 25 nights of reading, 50 nights of reading, and so on. We value this support and acknowledge the vital role parents play to develop skills such as reading, writing, numeracy, and science. We actively seek ways to link with the community. Every year, they open the Bulara Folk Festival with a drumming ensemble. For many, this is a highlight of the festival. In conjunction with the Bulara Community Development Group, a community pop-up library is located at the front of the school. They welcome people from the community to assist in the classrooms. Their students attend the district sporting events such as athletics, netball, basketball, swimming and cross country. Their students participate in football and netball clinics and in conjunction with local clubs, they use these opportunities to advertise local sports. After all, the lifeblood of clubs lies with how we develop our juniors. At Bolara, they value and believe in working together. They have a wonderful group of students who are considerate to others. They're also very fortunate to have a dedicated and hardworking staff who work hard to ensure that the children in their care receive the best possible learning opportunities. They believe they are all learners. Through collaboration, staff work together to develop their own professional practice skills as well as capacity. We work in hubs to plan, deliver and review lessons as we aspire to be the best teachers we can be. It says on the website, they encourage parents and family members to visit and engage in a range of activities offered at the school. The principal says, I'm a firm believer in our actions conveying a stronger message than our words. By getting involved in our school, you are actively showing your children that their education is important and valued by you. And now I'm going to throw some facts and figures from the ACARA website. The school has 44 students and the ICSIA value of the school is 972, which is well below the average of 1,000. The students are representative of the community. This is a very disadvantaged. Only 13% of students have parents from the upper quartile in parental income, 19% in the second highest, 25% from the third quartile and 44% are from the poorest quartile of the community. 4% of the students speak a language other than English at home and 11% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of disadvantaged students with a dedicated principal and dedicated teachers. It costs the taxpayer $19,462 above the Gonski Resource Standard to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $192,000 from the federal government and $787,000 from the state government, $9,900 from fees and $42,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have only been 53,000. 
So the money is well spent. The NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are comparable with those of similar backgrounds. So congratulations to all the dedicated staff and students at this school in Bulara. Bulara Primary School, you are our great state school of the week. And that brings us to the end of another DOGS program. If you'd like to find out more about us or read one of Jean's world-famous press releases, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye from us. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.